the block. This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is a gelatinous mess I call Hank. It's true. Good evening, I'm Hank, and I'm a gelatinous mess. Have you seen any movies this week? I don't have anything what? funny to say. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're going right into recently seen. We can do that. I, I don't know. I was going to make a jello joke, and then I, I don't have one, and I don't know where else you to go. No jello jokes, not one. Not really. I mean, I enjoy Jello Biafra. I enjoy lime Jello. I enjoy limes. I enjoy green things. I enjoy, you know, it, I don't have nothing. Nothing comes to mind. Getting a deeper sense of how your brain works now. Not I like well. Lime Jello. I like limes. I like <laughs> green things. I like Harry Nielsen. Okay, well that that jumps out. Where did that come from? Lime in the coconut. Oh, good God. Anyway, yeah. so what have you seen, Hank? Tetsuo the Iron Man. It's got a big drill dick in it. It's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have probably not watched Tetsuo since the early 90s. But I well, if you, uh, if you subscribe to Shudder, it thankfully has uh, recently been placed onto their catalog. It's an odd movie. It's about a businessman and his girlfriend that run over this guy called the Metal Fetishist. And the movie begins with the metal fetishist cutting his leg open and inserting a giant rod into it. And he slowly becomes crazy after maggots eat his flesh and infest the wound. He runs out into traffic. He gets run over by this businessman who slowly in turn becomes a big giant piece of metal and gets a giant drill dick. It's very crazy, psychotic, just bizarre imagery. Um, it's, it's psychotronic. It really is a Japanese psychotronic movie. It's shot in black and white. It's more artsy-fartsy than anything else. It kind of reminds me of a rinse dream sort of thing, a very ultra-violent arterial blood spray rinse dream sort of thing. It's by a guy named Shinya Tuskamoto. I'm awful with the Japanese names. And it spawned two sequels that uh, progressively got worse. Some people are really fond of the third one, The Bullet Man. Don't remember the name of the second one, but it's uh, a long... No, the third one, the second one's Bullet Man, and the third one's Body Hammer, right? No, I think the second one's Body Hammer, and the third one's Bullet... Bullet Man, Gun Man, Body Hammer, Tetsuo the something or another, it still follows the same similar plan of a man becoming a weapon or a piece of metal, and it, it, it loses its sensibility as it tries to become a more uh, earnest, actual movie with a plot, as to where when it was just a weird black and white kind of insane psychotronic art piece that really worked. It's on Shutter right now. It's a fun piece of horror history from 1989. It was, it was definitely a much better film when you received it in an unmarked package in the mail and you watch it and it's not even in English, no subtitles. So for a good bunch of years, I had no idea what was going on in the movie. It was just, all right, this is crazy fucking shit, man. The Japanese are doing some interesting things. It's like and a skinny then, puppy video. And then progressively, uh, a lot of Japanese cinema got less and less interesting to me and I don't watch really any of it anymore. It's, I don't know, Asian cinema just doesn't do it for me. I don't get it. 
I we were, just don't understand it. We were talking about this a few days ago, uh, off the off the record of Death by DVD. I really like Takashi Miike, but he is a different kind of beast from I think your average Asian Definitely. or Japanese cinema. Well, his stuff is just so beyond the pale and so over the top that it's like it's you have to you kind of have to watch it and seem to be believed. And when you get to a lot of the other stuff, like um, there's a new movie, Korean movie out called Parasite, which I haven't seen, granted, but it's it's people are giving it great reviews. And I basically read up on it, read a little bit of synopsis. I'm like, that doesn't sound that interesting. And then like other movies like, um, oh, what was a, like a more recent? Oh, like even it's the same director as the host. uh that directed Parasite and I liked the host. It was an okay movie, but I don't understand why it was just like, this is one of the best movies of all time. It's like, eh, it's a giant monster movie. It's got some heart behind it, but why is it? I don't know. I just don't, it does not speak to me whatsoever. It just does. Well, that it tends to happen. PK. I mean, like a lot of these Japanese and Asian films that come out, like train to Busan, you constantly hear in every review is, this is the best thing. This is amazing. This is fantastic. And, Train to Busan's cool. Like I, the first time I saw it, I I really was impressed. And then, I don't know, four or five months later, I caught it again and watched it again, and it just really, I don't know, something didn't hit me the right way. I think maybe it's the impact of how anxious and high tension the movie is, and then the second time you watch it, you kind of know where the jumps are. So it's re- watchability is really minimal, and that's a problem to me when something's effectiveness with watchability is minimal. Like I watched. Um, Oh, God. Cronenberg, Oliver Reed. I don't know why I can't think of the name of the movie. I'm inept. But I was watching The Brood. There we go. I was watching The Brood the other day, and it still manages, and I've seen that movie like 14, 15 times, it still manages to have a really strong effect. Like when you've got the weird sack babies and she lifts everything up at the end, you're still kind of shocked, even if you have seen that movie recently. And it's just very jarring, and it's got a lot of rewatchability, so it's got... A, a bigger value for me than something like Train to Busan. And that tends to be like with The Ring or um, The Grudge, a lot of the bigger Japanese series that have been remade, none of them have that I can watch this three or four times feeling to it. Well, I mean, you bring up Train to Busan, and I had heard review after review of someone, oh, this is how a zombie movie is supposed to be made. This is probably one of the best zombie movies you'll ever watch. It's probably it's one of like the best. It's like Return of the Living Dead on crack with no comedy. But it's one of the best horror movies, like one of the best horror movies of that year. And I watch it and I go, yeah, that was pretty good. And it's not that I like don't like a lot of Asian movies where I think they're just terrible. It's not that I think they're terrible. I just don't understand, like, when people are saying it's one of the best horror movies of the year. It's like, it was okay. I mean, it's a horror movie and it threw some heart into it, just like the host. I mean, it's got, they focus a little bit heavier on drama than a lot of American things. But at the same time, I just don't understand what, what you're flipping your shit at, over because it's just like it's kind of an average zombie movie. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it's it's all right. It's it's but tension I, was great. I mean, I loved the action aspect and I think it was probably a more successful action movie than it was a horror movie. I think it was like as far as zombie movies go. I and mean, we got into this a few weeks ago in our zombie show. But I say Trade to Busan is comparable to was it the the. What's the name of that movie again? The Night Eats? Oh, the, the Night Eats the World? Yeah. The Night Eats the World. That's I could not remember the title. Um, it, it, I had to write it down for that episode because I constantly wanted to call it something different every time. 
But like, I think those two movies are comparable. I think they're like both generally kind of focused around similar concepts and things. But and yeah, but as far as zombie honest, movies go, that, they're kind of the same. It's just like, all right, you did some zombie stuff, but you didn't like you didn't wow me with anything. Well, they did zombie stuff, but neither of those movies specifically focused on zombies. It was more about human survival, which, like, at its core, sure, Night of the Living Dead is about, but still, zombies were such a new, fearing thing. Like, even Dawn of the Dead, the zombies are a very big part of it. And that's where something like The Walking Dead is uh, in trouble, or people are complaining that the show is now just returning to having zombies in it, to where the last four or five years it's been a, a human drama. And that's the fear completely removed. Which is neither here nor there, I mean, but when you're going to make something about zombies, maybe it should be about zombies. Yeah, and I mean, just to get into zombie stuff and zombie culture, for some reason, and a lot of people, like especially younger generations, like they really like the running zombies and it it makes it more terrifying. I have like a comment at least on it that for me... I've always just been like Return of the Living Dead, despite its comedy aspects, was always horrifying because they ran. And then in my generation, uh, the Dawn of the Dead remake came out. That was really popular and really big. And it just seemed like not even ignoring the past, but maybe like updating like this is what they do now because old people did the walking ones and we're going to update it and then the fad just kind of kept on and became like 28 days later isn't zombies necessarily but it just became for four or five years what was incredibly popular and i find it even more hopeless like there's no fun there you've you've stripped again the horror out well, of it. you've stripped like because kind of the whole point in night of the living dead like when they are slow moving it's not the fact that you're like boy, I can't get away from them. That's not the whole point. The point is that it's everywhere, and this is going to be everywhere. You're never going to live a normal life again. It's not just sheerly about survival, and I think that's what a lot of people get hung up on, where they get really hung up on the idea of, but I'll just kill all of those zombies. Well, that's not particularly the point, if you kill them or not. Like It's, oh, that's it's, like, it's you more know. of a mental like, like changeover you have to make. I don't know. Well, you've got Rhodes versus Frankenstein going back to Day of the Dead of, you know, you can blast them all, but where will you go? You don't even have enough ammunition. There's more of them. I'm doing the impersonation, but, you know, where will you go? Tell uh, again, Captain, where will you go? And no one thinks about where they're going to go or how much ammunition they have. They're just going to run in and blast them. And what? What are you going to do? Then you'll be out of bullets. You're just going to fuck yourself in the long run. Yeah, it's not the fact that it's just so dangerous. It's just the fact that the world's over. That's what's scary. The fact you that you can it's survive but all the time now. I guess that's the ringing question. You can survive, but where are you going to go? What are you going to do? All the shopping but, malls are closed. Anyway, we're way off track. We got talking about zombie movies. Beware yeah. of the from, zombies. They from Tetsuo, <laughs> the Iron Man, for Christ's sakes. We started talking about zombie culture. Um, we have an entire show planned out, but maybe we'll do it next week. Uh, well, I'll do my recently seen, and I watched a movie from, I think it was 2017, called Jackals, that stars little Stephen Dorff, uh, and Jonathan Scrunchy, I can never remember that guy's name, he was in Doom Generation, he's in The Forsaken, I think he was in the Prom Night remake, um, it's funny, as I've seen this movie, and I can't remember, uh, oh, uh, Religious Cult, yeah, uh, say like a kind of a satanic cult. It's about deprogramming. It's about the idea of removing your child from a dangerous cult and deprogramming the brainwashing. The I would say it them. features Stephen Dorff. I don't think it stars because he is in it. Well, I but. think they did the psycho thing on it. 
I think that's what they were trying to do is like, which we're going to talk about briefly here in a little while with uh, one of, one of our picks. This movie, like, I think it was well shot. I think the acting was all really good for the most part. Um, I think the costuming, um, the, the violence was all handled fairly well. And, um, saying all these things after I finished it, I hated it. I kind of hated it. Mostly for the fact that, I mean, spoilers always on this show, but like 20 minutes in, I realized there is literally no hope for any of the heroes. They're all going to die. And like, what is the point in me watching this? And I watched another full hour of it. And it's, well, they all died and they all got killed in front of each other. And it's all misery and piss. And I think it was a, I think the point of the movie is an opposition of heroes that you're not. You're not supposed to like the family or Steven Dorff. You're kind of hoping the kid gets his freedom and, and his satanic family comes for him, which they do. And from the beginning, when I was watching it, I was rooting for that. Like, well, fuck his family. Why can't they accept him being a crazy cultist Satanist? And I hope they win. And they did. So by the end of the movie, for once, I was really pleased. Like, all right. Well, I mean, my thing, because the family ain't great, but I'm if I can't root for them, I definitely can't root for the well, cult. They're I, I took it maybe as like an, well, I mean, you don't know they're scumbags. I mean, they're, just uh, they're a satanic cult. cult that murders babies. Well, well obviously you, uh, you watch the witch babies have powers. You grind them up, you mash them and you can fly. I'm supposed to relate to a bunch of shitheads who kill a family in front of each other, no matter how flawed they you, you have is. a point. I can't keep. Okay. This isn't a debate. So you're right when you're well, right. Even something it. like the strangers, another home invasion film, you know, like ultimately, you know that this is not going to end well for air, like for the, your, the heroes, the protagonist. I don't know. You kind of have but hope at least until there's Dennis a little bit of hope shot. in the strangers. There is no hope in jackals. I knew 20 minutes in all these fuckers are going to die. There is no way they're getting out of this. And they really don't even put up that good of a fight. You don't even have, like, some cult, like, you know, kind of a, a deliverance thing. Or, they howl. They're furries. Uh, or a, a hunter's blood type situation. I don't know why I went to red exploitation films. But you know what I mean of, like, we're going to take some of these fuckers out with us before we go. And it, barely. I mean, they do, like, they kind of hint at straw dogs in the film. And the difference in straw dogs is there's, no matter how fucked up the outcome is, because it kind of has a happy ending, sort of, even though everybody's changed forever and all that shit. There's still some hope of life. There's no hope of life. There's no hope of anything in this movie. It's just like, hey, watch these fuckers get dismantled, and then it's over. And it's just like it's. Well, so I mean, there's hope. Me, it was just too downbeat. Like, there's hope for the cultist life, you know? I mean, if yes. you're looking at it from that aspect, he might go on because he was forgiven by his cult leader scumbags great i'm glad the scumbags get to take over i think that was the whole point of the movie that it was you know here's the anti-heroes winning but instead of showing us an anti-hero they didn't really give us any characters at all they didn't know no one you and that's a problem even with the family as you were saying that there's no character there's no one to care for there's no hope there's, there's no really not- reason to get behind anything it was a good i mean this is a midnight movie, I think. It's like a spook show movie. This is kind of a throwaway popcorn movie, but I enjoyed it. I mean, Stephen Dorff wasn't intolerable. Well, I mean, it kind of left me feeling the same way something like Henry of a Portrait of a Serial Killer makes you feeling. But I think that movie is telling a story about a madman. And, he and that has a whole point. Yeah, it has a purpose to it. And this just seemed very edgelord to me of just like, 
no, fuck that, fuck hope. Let's just, I mean, let's, this is reality. This is reality based we could get with this kind of extreme idea. And it's just like, well, that's not interesting for me to watch because now I'm just waiting to watch a slaughter, which is not interesting at all. And especially if it's just like people getting stabbed with knives, that's why I mean, it's just like, it doesn't even get like special effectsy or anything. It's just kind of like, here's a bunch of dread and evil in the world and it's over. Go to sleep at night, kids. Yeah, I will say, showing all the imagery, and it's supposed to be a big, satanic, spooky ooky cult, and they all wear these crazy animal masks and howl, and then it's just knife and stabbing deaths, and you've got kind of a cool final battle with the family before they get fully slaughtered toward the end of the movie, but there's not a lot of payoff. Well, even something like Charlie's Family, the the Van Bever film, there's like some payoff to it. We're not like, we're living with the cultists. When you're living with your supposed protagonist the entire time in the film, like, I'm not even getting the cultist side of it. They're completely faceless, like, domineering force, and there's, like— And it's supposed to be in the 80s, right? Like this I is, don't know. I, I think it says— I think they stayed at the beginning of the movie. It's the 80s, so it's trying to feed off the satanic panic, all these crazy cults of the left-hand path out living in the woods in the 1980s. So, But that, like, you kind of forget, like even you just said, you don't know. Like, that's a problem. If you're going to make a product that specifically is keying in and, and talking about the satanic panic and, a, and an 80s event, you kind of need to make it look like that or work on it. Something. And it doesn't say anything other than... The evil in the world is it's going to kill you. There is no hope. So I don't even yourself. think it says that. It's just like, so downbeat. That's what kind of my problem with it. I do enjoy a good downbeat movie every once in a while, but it just seemed way too downbeat of like, why am I even watching this? Because it's literally just watching. Because we both win. found it somewhere streaming. Yes, that's 100%. I had heard about it before. I think it was on the Shockwaves podcast. Or I've avoided watching that. it for a really long time because I thought it was about that assassin named the Jackal, the, the real guy from the 70s and 80s, the Israeli assassin, and I was just avoiding it. And uh, to be honest, I saw Stephen Dorff as the headliner, and eh, I like okay, Stephen Dorff. Man. He's he's done really good work, but I'm not going to go out of my way to watch something with Stephen Dorff in it because it's Stephen Dorff. Maybe if it was like 97 or 96, I'd be really like, yeah, Stephen Dorff, woo! But if it doesn't it, it start was, with blah or end with Dade, I really don't want to go out of my way to watch a Stephen Dorff movie. But yeah, like again, I would give it like a two and a half overall because, I mean, it's, it's a well-made film, but I just, I think the script... Failed them. I'm pretty sure Toby Hooper um, was the scriptwriter's mentor. I might be getting that completely wrong, but just you know, like he helped um, helped him like work through the script. And if anybody says the Texas Chainsaw Massacre ends the same way, it really doesn't. Because again, there's some sort of hope. And in 20 minutes in, I don't want to watch the rest of this because there's no hope of anybody. Like I. If all your characters suck, literally every single one of them, why the fuck am I watching people tear each other apart? And it's funny how, like, I I started this with, I kind of liked it, too, where now you've brought up points that have made me think. Directly from the beginning, like, so you've got the brother and his cult friend, and they get kidnapped, and you find out that it's the father and this Marine who's played by Stephen Dorff, and then the family's introduced, which is an incompetent mother that doesn't seem to care about anyone, a completely douchebag, out-of-line brother— and then an inappropriately cast father in Steven Dorff. From that moment on, all the characters begin to get picked off, and there is absolutely no 
get to know anyone. All you know is one's an aggressive dick that can apparently run pretty fast, and uh, well, his, his overly bitchy wife. She yeah, okay, so you're right. Mother. There's a little bit. There's a little character There's, development. But, I mean, it's all, like, character traits that don't, just all make them look worse. It's basic uh, screenwriting 101, opening a book of, well, what can I make my characters? Aggressive, a drunk, family problems, disputes, none of them have a soul. And that, we've talked about it a lot, but that tends to be a problem even with something as shallow as an original movie for streaming. You kind of have to have a soul to at least your characters or base them on some reality if you someone can't relate to them how can someone anyone that's the big thing if i can't relate to anyone in the story then why do i care to watch this at all because it's just unnecessary dread the world's like a completely fucked up place anyway why would i want to spend an hour and 20 minutes finding out how much more fucked up it could get i think for the most part i just enjoyed watching the bad guys win but um, since we're rating everything, Tetsuo the Iron Man, that's a five. Five out of five. It's not only a classic, but it definitely visually is something that needs to be watched if you want something more, I don't know, deviantly stimulating. If you're that Max Ren type of Videodrome person and you've not seen Tetsuo the Iron Man, it I don't think it'll push buttons or boundaries, but it's very odd. It's very exotic. It's, um, it's hypersexual. It's just bizarre, and it's a really cool piece. It's really enjoyable. I would give Tetsuo four, which is a really high rating for what oh, yeah. it's to basically a student film, which is I mean, I'm not saying that's what it is, but that's what we're doing here is it's kind of a student film. So it's a it's a really good student film. Yeah. My comparison to Max uh, Rent's Dream is more like visually with its sexualization, because like a, a, a Rent's Dream movie is, though, porn quality pretty good. And you can see a lot of uh, professionalism behind it. You can see where a lot of work was put into some of the bizarreties, especially like the, um, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari from, from what? 80, 86, 87. I'd say like, um, it's 89, I think. Actually. Yeah. I, I, ballpark range. Yeah. I would say like with Tetsuo, it's strengths are visual strengths and like, it does not have any story strengths really. And that's the only reason you have to like to do yeah. points because it's literally like a visual exercise. It's an interesting visual exercise, but it's not much more than that. It's not telling a compelling story. The story really deserves like a bit more clarity, but it's kind of just like a typical Japanese revenge sort of thing. I mean, all the same applications for the ring of you and call then they turn to a giant a- dick. A metal yeah, dick. A giant metal dick, and then the next movie, it's a giant metal bullet, then a giant metal gun, and it's just very, very crazy, bizarre imagery, and that's something that I think really catapults and makes um, Asian cinema or Asian horror and exploitation really different from anything that's done in the United States that we had, you know, like rubber monsters and giant gelatinous beasts and things like that, but the Japanese just kind of went, like, completely crazy. Wait, am I am I smelling a Segway? I, I think you are. Oh God, that that smells like Jello. All right, we're talking about the Blob. We're talking about all iterations of the Blob. There's we'll always room the for original. Jello. I'm going to talk a little bit, very little about the sequel, and we'll talk about the 1988 remake. Why are we doing this show? Because Screen Factory just put out a fucking nice little Blu-ray of it that I've been waiting like five, six years for. Uh, um, here's a, a double whammy. Not only can we plug Scream Factory, but you have been waiting. You told me about this months ago. I, I got this thing ordered. Uh, eventually, I want to do a blob show. The week you get it, 
The Criterion Channel decides to put the blob 1958 on with two different commentary tracks. So now you, the consumer, the audience member, you can run to Scream Factory and say Death by DVD sent us and you can go sign up to Criterion and say Death by DVD sent us and it'll mean nothing. You'll get no discounts and they don't endorse us or know who we are whatsoever. But you can gosh darn do it. (laughs) Well, I mean, like with the the 1988 Blob remake Blu-ray, they had put it out before on Blu-ray through Twilight Time, and Twilight Time like runs really small runs. They do like 1500 to 2000 so if you don't pre-order, you're basically fucked. You're going to end up paying, like, I think that the Twilight Time version of the Blob DVD or Blu-ray is somewhere in the neighborhood like $150 on eBay right now, which is just fucking stupid. That's completely and, unnecessary. That's just how, I mean, I understand why companies have to do small runs. I understand all that. But the way it's handled in the public is just bullshit. The way people just buy up 10 copies just to fucking jack the price up. That's just ridiculous. Well, just to even interrupt you with something even more random on the subject of Blu-ray and small run things in our, our niche market of horror and exploitation. Currently, I guess there's a massive run out of red blu-ray cases so all the major companies like vinegar syndrome and blue underground are now transferring anything that was red and it's becoming special editions because i guess you know by the case from wherever they're made in indonesia all these niche companies have literally sold out on these these discs so now you know your copy of snuff from blue underground that's in the red case is going to jump 50 60 dollars in price which is just insane because it's a fucking red case well, it's, it says something about eBay culture and a lot of other things. What the companies, I understand it's my own fucking fault for not pre-ordering, but at the same time, when you do pre-orders for like two days before, like beforehand, and people literally are buying 10 to 15 copies each just to sell on eBay because it's a secondary market price, I think, I think Code Red does this. I do know uh, Waxworks, the vinyl company, does this or has started doing it, Mondo, where basically you get two. Yeah, On your credit control. card, you get two. Other than that, you're going to have to find somebody else's credit card. Or, like, you have to change your shipping. You can't get it all, like, ten copies shipped to the same address. And they're trying to control that secondary market because they're losing money in the long run, too, because, yes, they got their initial cover price for it, but... Then again, for their product just to turn up on eBay literally the day it comes out. Like before things are even shipped, some of them are showing up on eBay in inflated prices like by $40 before they've even shipped to the original consumer. It's just kind of a bullshit eBay culture we live in now. Vinegar Syndrome even has a limit with some of their special releases and the Vinegar Syndrome label that it's just one per customer, even if it's an outlet. That, you know, some of the places like Tampa Bay Grindhouse even get a limit to what they're receiving because people go to storefronts that sell these niche market things and buy the fuck out of them just to inflate the prices, which is unfair is one thing to say. But even recently, a situation I was in, I went and saw Nick Cave, conversations with Nick Cave, where he talks and he sings. And I went to buy a ticket when they went on sale through Ticketmaster, which wasn't even sold out. I went to buy two tickets and I, I got them, but it was through a bot on the Ticketmaster website. So it was two tickets on opposite sides of the theater, which is ridiculous. I was going with somebody. I want to sit next to them. 
no refunds, can't do absolutely anything about it. You've got the two tickets. By that point in time, it was sold out, so I had to go through a bot to buy two tickets next to each other, and then obviously couldn't get rid of the other two. So I spent about $400 in total and ended up sitting alone because it was a better seat. And that's what happens. Nobody even ends up with some of these products. People buy four and five of them, and they're special release things, and like, just pointing out vinegar syndrome, numbered, 1,500 or so are made. Somebody buys 55 copies of them, and they get thrown out. So some of these art projects, like Taking Tiger Mountain, which was never released on video, has never existed before its run in uh, the the mid-'80s, are just lost completely to people that at least would have enjoyed them for you know whatever art piece they are, whatever they want to enjoy them for, to be seen. The whole point is for them to be seen. And that's what happened with the Twilight Time Blob Blu-ray, because I always thought that like I would want special features on a Blob release because the 1988 Blob, I think, is has a lot of stories, a lot of interesting making of stuff, and they had commentaries on it and all that kind of shit. And I was like, that sounds kind of interesting. But I didn't even know about it until it had already like sold out uh, pre-order. Like, I think it had been out six months before I even knew that it was available through Twilight Time. And then now you're just you're priced out unless you want this for uh, two hundred fifty dollars, then you're just screwed. It's like, well, that's kind of shitty. So I was excited when Screen Factory picked up the rights for it and put out a, a deluxe Blu-ray edition of it, which. Um, I, the one complaint I can make about it, because I sat down, it's got three commentary tracks on it, uh, one of which is from, the, uh, I believe, the um, original Twilight Time Blu-ray um, ported over. and But it's just like three hours of interviews. Um, I would prefer if they had taken those interviews and maybe made like a little hour and a half documentary or making of, but they just decided to post mostly interviews on the, the Blu-ray and those interviews can get to be a slog because without editing, you have a lot of people like Tony Gardner gets interviewed, Chuck Russell. But there are a lot of the time they just keep saying kind of the same things because they're just telling their version of the story. And when you don't edit that into like a, a nice, concise documentary, I'm hearing the same fucking stories over and over. I know how they make the blob. Please stop telling me what the blob was in the 19, but you know, that's just kind of how interviews go. But overall it was a good purchase. I'm just glad to have a nice clean, you know, digital copy of the blob 1988, which was a movie. I didn't particularly like when it came out in the eighties. I thought the ending sucked. We'll get into all this, but overall I think the 1988 blob, um, has proved itself over the years. And I really enjoy the movie way more than I used to, but we'll get into that after we uh, start talking about, the 1958 Blob with Stephen McQueen, 27-year-old high school student. Stephen McQueen, way before Steve McQueen. It's funny, though, that um, I used to really, really love the 1988 Blob, and after rewatching watching and, and going through the 1958, I prefer the original much, much more. <laughs> yeah, I, We're split, baby. Yeah, it's kind of funny how it happened this way, too, because I really, like, growing up, I really related to it, and I really enjoyed the... The Blob, you know, that was the only one it was for me. It was the the Kevin Dillon movie, and it was much later, um, you know, going into my 20s, that I think I finally saw the Steve McQueen, the Stephen McQueen original by um, Shorty Yaworth or Irvin S. Yaworth. He liked to be called Shorty. And it was produced by um, Jack H. Harris, who his name doesn't mean much. He only produced a handful of movies, maybe 20 movies, many of them, most of them, all of them B-movies. He did Dark Star, you know, he did the 
the, the birth of Alien. He was an executive producer on that. But his daughter is um, like she owns Fiji Water and Palm. So it's this weird connection to things like the blob or shorty yeah was a fundamentalist methodist who weirdly lived in his own like village in pennsylvania and had a film production company made some three thousand short christian films and somehow ended up hooking up with this sort of a dead industry and a gone job but a, a hollywood publicist jack harris would take movies and would tour around the country with the actors and the directors and show it and he was the guy that was in charge of all that. What really brought him to fame and kind of gave him some credit is he did the Boy Scout movie. I can't remember the name of it. I think it was called Jamboree or The Jamboree. And it had just about everyone in Hollywood, and it was directed by uh, Cecil B. DeMille. And this guy, Jack Harris, was in charge of that tour. He did that for about two years until he kind of came up to like a, a crossroads where he was asked – what, what would be the perfect example of a movie that would sell? Like what there's got to be something right now in the industry. You've been handling this. You've been handling it really well. What do you think is a great idea of a movie that would sell? And at this point in Hollywood in the, the mid to late 50s, teen exploitation was beginning to become on the rise. And you had things like Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean career being cut down. And, and that really blew things like James Dean had done. Uh, Giant was the last uh, Rebel Without a Cause was the last movie to come out. And he, he did Rebel Without a Cause because Giant took a while to film because Liz Taylor was pregnant. I can't remember the name of his first movie, East of Eden. And he did Rebel Without a Cause. That blew into fame. He died, and teen exploitation just kind of became a big thing. But there was no horror. There was no sci-fi. So what Jack had decided that would sell out of anything was, let's make a teen exploitation movie, but let's make it realistic and make it kind of a sci-fi thing. He had this idea, and then they crossed paths with uh, Irvin Shorty Yaworth, and he had this idea, the, the Molten Marvel or the Molten something, or the Molten Meteor, and they didn't have an ending for it, but it was a gelatinous blob sort of story, and these two crossed paths, they came up with an ending, and the blob is a weird path of a, a bizarre Christian fundamentalist and a Hollywood kind of socialite that joined together and birthed Steve McQueen's career. 27-year-old, 18, Stephen McQueen. <laughs> well, and I, like, Hank has been sitting here studying. The didn't even mean to. I didn't even put effort into this. Like, it, I, I went and I just thought it was on the Criterion channel, and I went, oh, man, there's a commentary. And they had two. There was a, there, And if you want to pay, uh, I think, eleven ninety nine a month, the Criterion channel does offer a lot of great things. It's a really fun network, but... Both of these commentaries are kind of really just, I don't know, fantastic because you've got these really old school guys. One commentary was by Irvin Yaworth, the director, and it's all his story and all his perspective. And then the next commentary is by Jack Harris, and it's all his perspective of how he got it made. And this guy really went above and beyond. Uh, he, he financed, he, he cashed in his life insurance policy, his kids. He got it paid for. He worked with secretly one of the heads of the film lab of Fox and and these guys put everything on the line about a hundred thousand dollars in 1957 got this movie made thinking you know <laughs> who knows where it's gonna go it gets picked up by a major label and has become weirdly a, a, an epitomous kind of forever thing like the word the blob the the aspect of teens not being as bad as they could be 
uh, just a whole different angle of almost a hopeful science fiction horror movie. It was a birth of a new recipe for horror going into the 1960s. And like I was saying, it's I don't have a lot of the history of the original Blob. Um, I'm just going to come at it from straight as a viewer and not knowing a lot of the backstory. But that's about as, it. That was the history. Is that the history? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, we have we have more to go, but no, that's about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, like for me, I'd say the most important aspect of this movie that works is Steve McQueen because he's an amazing actor and he really like lends some credibility to what ultimately is a piece of exploitation trash from the 50s. There uh, is an excuse, though. I, I learned this excuse that I've wondered for years of why. Uh, an almost 30-year-old Steve McQueen was cast to be a 16-year-old. And uh, we'll get to that story in the long run later, but the biggest, most important part of everything is he realized, and he went to everyone and said, come on, guys, I'm, I'm not a teenager. I don't know how to do this. And he decided as a method actor, because he's a Strasbourg method guy, that was Steve McQueen, he was going to just do young energy. And that was the excuse that he's going to do young energy and it's going to work and he, Oddly, it does. The first 10 minutes or so of the movie, you're like, what the fuck's this old guy doing in here? Because Steve McQueen didn't ever look 27. He looked maybe 58 going always. on. Always. Yeah. He always had a smoke-scarred face. Just Dying of like, cancer. You couldn't tell the day. Like, he looked very rugged his entire life. But after he really starts getting into it, and you and I were um, discussing a couple days ago just actors that really – oozed potential that you could just see fire on them like um john cazale was who we were discussing steve mcqueen's one of those guys it doesn't matter that he was 27 he oddly about you you just let it ride for a few minutes he pulls it off he actually makes you you don't believe he's 16 but there it is doesn't matter. Uh, yeah there's That's some credence the, the, the to the whole energy point, though it like just his, doesn't matter. He's not 16. Um, he, his whole theory that he was playing energy of a young person, there's a lot of credence to that because it pays off. He, he's playing the energy. It kind of works. I would say um, in its favor in this film is the fact that it is a ridiculous concept that they did make work. And not only that, they were able to take— It's not overly ridiculous. I mean, it's well, the it, thing, kind of. Yeah, but it, like when you end up with the special effects and things, you end up with— kind of a wad of jello attacking you, which isn't particularly which still scary. exists to this day out of all, all horror movies. The blob lives in a five gallon tub somewhere, probably in Chester, Pennsylvania, and you can still stir it up because all it was was silicone. Dyed red. Um, but I think a lot of that gets fixed in the remake because that's really like when the blob becomes really active and it's not this slow moving ooze, it becomes a little bit more dangerous. But what we'll give credit for in this film, the original, is the fact that they make it work. And they, um, for something that is ultimately just an exploitation film, they treated it pretty serious and were able to get really decent results out of it. Um, because if you look at a lot of the um, older exploitation horror films of that era, everybody's playing uh, very over the top. They're doing... Um, very exaggerated performances. If you look at any Bird Eye Gordon stuff, you'll see what I'm talking about, where it's just like everybody knows that this concept is fucking ridiculous and no one's particularly taking anything seriously and everybody's being incredibly arch. And I don't think too many people are being very arch in this movie. They're playing it almost in kind of a Night of the Living Dead sense where it's they are playing it with some dread. They're not playing it with like a Hollywood fervor of uh, this is – it's a picture show and that's what we're doing. I, I think – 
The well, they even play fun at that. is what works. Like, there's a big part of the movie, uh, even going to the beginning of, like, uh, the first time it's kind of referenced in film, too, of the Midnight Spook Show. They're, they're going to a midnight movie. They're playing off that this could all almost happen in the universe of a midnight movie. So, I mean, it very aptly is an early exploitation film, but I think a big difference between this and the 1988, 1987, whichever, I mean, it's filmed in 87, so 88 remake is, the remake focuses heavily on the blob and the terrifying horror aspect, and you're right with that, that it does elaborate a little bit more, it gives you a little bit more imagination, and it, you know, comparatively from the 50s to then, it looks better. But I think that's almost a fault that, the first movie I don't think was meant to be taken as an exploitation movie that going from um, Shorty Yaworth's background, especially as uh, primarily a orthodox Christian filmmaker, and that was his message behind everything. He really wanted to explore uh, along with the producers a movie that presented troublesome teens that weren't that bad and a small community inside itself that worked together. And the remake you know, they call it's not they're not called in, but they've got the scientists, they've got outsiders. They, there's a whole different ending and aspect to it as to where the first movie was supposed to be kind of a wholesome thing that the whole family could enjoy and still be terrified over. So they were trying to play off the honest aspects of horror and then people working together and it being kind of the underdog, which became a trademark of Steve McQueen's career of him being kind of the underdog loner. So it's ironic and a lot of um, you know, publicists, not publicists, but biographers of Steve McQueen actually believe throughout his entire career, he worked to com- play this character from the blob over and over again because that's what he wanted to be, just a small-town normal person. And he had a very rough upbringing, a very hard life. Steve McQueen Lane is not the base of the story. I think the, the whole point, and especially the filmmakers and the people behind it, was the story of people working together to overcome something. And at the same time, they wanted to make an easily enjoyable product that the whole family could go see, but also scare them, but not over the top. And you've got a lot of historic things like the theater scene that was even ripped off by um, William Castle with the tingler that nobody had ever really included like the audience in a horror movie. And you've got this blob and infiltrating the theater, which was carried over and used in the remake. One of the most powerful fun sequences. It just catapulted the, the genre. It took things from, a drive-in B-movie aspect. In this movie itself, The Blob from 1958, was supposed to be a backup movie. It was going to tour with another movie as a double feature and be the backup in case it sucked. But when it was released, the initial movie it was touring with, which unfortunately I can't remember the name of at all, was lost. So The Blob ended up at most theaters and was the A-runner and sold as a single piece. And it not only skyrocketed Steve McQueen to fame, but everyone involved. I mean, this movie was lampooned by everyone uh, martin and lewis everyone uh, all the late night talk shows brought up the blob this became part of culture and just i mean the movie was going to be called the glob um, the molten meteor just all these dumb things would have been lost as a b movie and the word the blob ended up being used i I think somebody was looking at the sherwin williams logo and that's where they came up with that whole gooey design for the introduction of the movie and the word the blob got brought forward but um, i could be wrong on that but it just became a, a, a synonym of horror, of a monster, of, of uh, gluttony almost, the blob. And you follow that with the remake. It doesn't seem to have power. It just comes off kind of, you know, it's an 80s movie and it's good. It, it just doesn't have that reflection of hometown America working together. It doesn't have I that simple have nature. I have to disagree. I Let's do, do it. Disagree. 
because if you get to the remake, I think those values are still in place. It might be a little bit harder edged. Um, it might be a little bit more violent. Kevin Dillon might be. I think Kevin Dillon's the problem. Kevin Dillon needs to be punched <laughs> in the face. And he's the problem with the remake. I will straight up say it right now because he's no, I just, wanted to bring this up because horrid. before we did the show, you said something uh, completely on point about Kevin Dillon that needs to be on the show. Every role he's ever played, you just want to hit him in the face. You especially platoon. It's this is the same nature. guy. Yeah. But it's, it's just so it's, it's his little Weasley face. I don't know what it is. It's well, just like you look like a snot nosed punk. You look like a bully from like grade school. That's a big problem when like when I was a kid and I first saw this movie, I loved the mullet and the motorcycle and the leather jacket, and I didn't really look or know who Kevin Dillon is. Well now I was like he was a dick. As a grown ass man, I look at him and I love the image and it's really cool. You know, it's renegade. It's pretty neat, but it's just it's fucking. What was Matt Dillon doing? Was there nobody else? And Charging uh, way too much to be in this picture was what Matt Dillon was doing. And here's one of the things that actually works for the movie. Um, they wanted to get Chad McQueen to do the role. And if you don't know who Chad McQueen is, it's Steve McQueen's kid who was in two of the Karate Kid movies as one of the blonde douchebags and is easily forgettable. He decided that he was too good to do a movie that was attached to his dad's name because that was his rule as an actor and has now faded into complete and absolute ambiguity. And we all remember Kevin Dillon, though. Nobody forgets that. I can't watch Entourage without fucking thinking of it, which I don't know why I still watch Entourage. That's I've opened it's a, a closet show, here. Hank. Yeah. It's fucking terrible. I don't um, know but- why I like Mark Wahlberg's life story. I just do. If you really get back to what we were discussing before about the hometown thing, I think that's present in the remake because ultimately is the town banding together. I mean, you have a couple of heroes who do most of the work, but well, the town I mean, does fall together to defeat ending. the blob. Like all in all, both movies are very tight knit together that I mean, the the remake uh, embellishes a lot more with story and a lot of more action, which isn't a fault whatsoever. It's it's fairly entertaining and it's it looks nice but um and i think god you you got a lot of fun appearances from people in this movie you got bill mosley you've got god um pete martell from twin peaks whose name completely so close pops out of my name head uh, somebody um art lafleur Art Art Yeah, who doesn't love Art LaFleur? But there just seems, I don't know, There's it's just looser. I think you when you have the original blob at the end of the movie and they figure out it's CO2 and everyone comes together and you've got this quaint, obvious 50s ending, there was what, no... Not a snow of, machine? Not a, oh. not a weird fucking, like, fucking MacGuffin of a snow machine? Yeah, in your town, do you know randomly where the random CO2 trucks are? I mean, because they knew where it was in the Well, block. they have trucks like that for ski towns, but they don't really work like that. They don't make literal snow. Well, here's like something. ice and stuff. It's <laughs> This is left out, I guess, a little bit in the remake, but instead of Pennsylvania, the remake is supposed to be in a Colorado town. So I think they tried to set some of these things up for you. But in the long run, it just doesn't like the first movie, the original movie, everything is connected inside the town. And you've got this outside touch with um, the remake of the scientist guys. And it came from space and it's they give this whole backstory to what the blob is. And it becomes its own character as to where the original movie are these people coming together, the good and the bad, these miscreant teenagers. And of course, you have to look at the ratings and what the movie is about, like they're miscreants because they were hot rod racing backward kind of safely with no other cars on the road for like not even a mile like they, these aren't really ruffian teens but it's still like i mentioned with um rebel without a cause 
playing into that concept because that was really coming into popularity into the the mid to late 50s and going into the 60s of uh, miscreant teens, switchblade sisters, uh, well, gangsters, okay. kids in peril. And then you add this horror aspect. I think it was just trying. I, I think the blob was more of a statement to the American time because up until like uh, post-World War II, teenagers really weren't a thing that you were like born and then you became an adult and there wasn't really an examination or like a thought of being a teenager. And then this weird kind of exploitation boom happened of all these teen movies and then monster movies. And then with the blob, these things were all added into one thing, but oddly wholesome. Like it wasn't just miscreant teens with switchblades and slutty girls and cat houses or a B monster movie. It was the bad guys are the good guys and everyone worked together that society isn't at a whole bad the remake plays with your expectations and i th- like i think it falls along the same lines as if you're as you're speaking because it plays with the expectations of the football player being your hero and it, the old it psycho takes twist immediately and, and that's the, the funniest thing i forgot re-watching this that it was donovan leach and i mean 80s horror he kind of really had his name and things and you know who donovan leach is and it's just such a I don't know, a weird casting that you've got just the two most rodent faced guys as your leads that between Kevin Dillon and um, Donovan, both of them are like one's a little rat guy and one's a little ferret guy. And you don't know who you want to hope for whatsoever. And it, it's just I don't know. I think it's bad casting on all. Well, your. I mean, like what what how they end up solving this is you have Donovan Leach playing the football hero who gets taken out and then automatically you get thrown that Kevin Dillon's going to end up being your hero. But ultimately what happens is Shawnee Smith becomes the hero of the film um, as just like, you know, kind of a base cheerleader at the beginning who you think is going to get dragged through this whole movie as the damsel in distress. She really is the one with the guts, the, the muscle throughout the film. She does more than anybody and she saves more people and like really does the work of the hero in this film. Kevin Dillon ends up being almost being her sidekick. So I think it's under expectations in that way. But it's certainly an underappreciated uh, heroin lead sort of thing. I mean, like, and I guess that's a surprising aspect that I didn't really think about rewatching that none of your male leads actually pay off. Well, Kevin Dillon just bails on her like, like midway through the movie. And he's just worried about himself and that, but she's the one who like ends up saving the town, saving her brother, saving some people going into the sewers letting uh, letting that one kid die but whatever that's not her fault when you put all those things together in an 80s film in an 80s remake i think it takes what they started in the 1950s and really does amp it up to an 80s sort of 80s sort of style and that's like kind of a big problem with remakes is sometimes they lose what they're trying to accomplish. I think they just intensified everything. They took all the things that didn't work about the original Bob and, and kind of elaborate on them. A lot of that is special effects and what you can do is special effects, but also a lot of it is the drama and the horror and the tension that's created. Now a modern Bob remake that they've been trying to do for 10, 15 years now, even Rob Zombie had to go at it. It's almost like if you have a CGI Bob, it's not going to work. It's just not going to do anything. And I think one of the things that does work is... Well, it's funny you bring that up, even, because in 1999, um, I don't know who, but a, a company came to Jack Harris and said, we want to do a Blob series. We're going to do a Blob TV show. 
And each week it's just going to be something else happening. And we're going to start it with the end of the movie. The original Blob movie ends with them dropping it off in the Arctic and a question mark forming over the end, which was a trademark of all of Jack Harris's movies he produced. He insisted on it. If you go to IMDb and check them out, he was thorough through his entire career of 20 movies doing that. And it's ridiculous. It obviously didn't happen because there's nowhere to fucking go with it. I mean, even beware the, the blob. There's yeah, somewhere to go with it. <laughs> but the direction that you go with it was appropriate with beware of the blob because they handled it in a comedy essence and they, you know, took something differently. Like I have a whole goofy idea of a blob remake sequel, a sequel to the remake we were talking about the other night, which is neither here nor there. But something is just lacking to me. Like I, the whole idea, I think, of the original movie of of showing the quote unquote bad guy becoming the good guy with these miscreant teenagers helping save the day was lost that you don't really care about the Kevin Dillon character. And then Donovan's fucking killed right off the bat. And then you get, you know, the switcheroo is it's a, a female lead and the cheerleader becomes the lead, but it's not a community coming together that everyone's still at odds for the end of the movie. No, they aren't. Well, I mean, he the, the sheriff is yelling, like, I'll shoot you out of your fucking shoes, boy. Like, even down to the last minute until... Until everybody realizes that... Yeah, and then... But it wasn't a matter of trust or a town coming together. It was the blob came out of the sewer and ate the guy, and then they realized, like, oh, fuck. I'm sorry it doesn't come sooner for you, but it still comes. It's still it still there. comes. I just don't think it's as prevalent. But I, you know, and my, my point, too, is that I'm not, like, debating because I think you're absolutely accurate and correct, and it's it's just looking at the generations and the time changing of what made a community in 1950s and 60s core values and people coming together and also what was acceptable and shown in a movie and then translating that into the 1980s late 80s i think it's absolutely are you a christian no my work his magic on you through the, the blob no 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 i'm with jack harris who's jewish don't worry I still don't believe Christ has walked on this earth. And if so, we'll crucify him again. It don't, <laughs> don't get me going on killing Jesus. God, I'll talk about that for hours. Well, you do, you keep going on about all the, like how good a hometown life is. Cause I think that at, at, at its whole is not my core beliefs or what I think is entertaining, but what I feel is the blob. I think that was the core value and the, the inception behind it and what the filmmakers were trying to make. So when it's you still remake there, something, just with a much harder edge, though, I'm saying when you take how things are translated and how they are in the 1950s and what core values were and what life was and how people accepted things and what could be shown on film. And then you take it to 1987. It's adequate that there's not a lot of differences. Uh, if anything, it's just looser characters. And maybe I think a lot of my issues is doing the old psycho twist and killing Donovan and putting Kevin Dillon in the lead that. Kevin's just it's not that he's bad casting. The character just is kind of useless in this essence. So you try to have two Steve McQueens and you kill one off and it just nothing comes from that character. We should have just focused on the cheerleader. We should have just made her the badass from the very start. Well, like okay, anything and maybe it's a tone change. There's just something that is a little uh, bit not as that's what I like about the remake, though, is the tone change. Well, okay, Yeah, I'm I've. I prefer a horror film over a sci-fi film personally, but when you get to the remake, you get to the fact that anything can happen and they are relentless with their characters because even like most of the character deaths in this movie are shocking and painful. And I just don't feel that in the original film to where people just kind of get 
very quickly consumed. But what about the, um, the bum at the very beginning of the movie? Yeah, he gets consumed and it's over with. He's a bum, and but everybody else they might scream, blah 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 blah, and it's well, over. Well, you got to look at. I mean, it's it's nineteen fifty seven going into fifty eight, and this is um God, I can't remember the guy's name. It's driving me crazy. Uh, uh, Olin Howland, and um, you know he he picks up the blob. It's almost the same from the remake. He he has a stick. He pokes the thing, and it comes down the stick, and it captures his arm. He goes to to knock it off with the stick, and it consumes him. And like even going into the hospital later on, it's growing. It's doing it, it. It's oddly a very apt remake. This is one of those few. It's like the Omen remake, too. It's very, very accurate to what happened in the original movie. All they did in the remake was explore more. They exploded a little bit, even that like you have the exact same concept and theory, but the blob is much more blob. It, I mean, it's there in the remake. And yeah, effects work. But that's the movies are so interconnected and perfect. There's just one. I mean, I don't think one is lesser than the other. I enjoy the original blob, I think, because of I just like when everyone works together and things end the way it ended. Just, you know, it's a 50s movie and I enjoy that aspect. Well, I not. I mean, if anything, <laughs> if I'm going to convert, if I'm going to like believe in a weird cultish religion, it's not going to be something as, as I don't know, redundant as Christianity. I like the space people, Xenu, uh, those guys. I don't want to say their name because they sue a lot. I like them. I'd join them if I was going to do a cult sort of thing. I don't know. There's just a friendlier, happier connection. And the 80s that has more movies. Is time period, though, I think more than anything. Well, that's what I mean. I just like 50s movies. I like that, you know, ba da 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 the end. Though. And I find the original blob somewhat cold because of it. Well, it seems like people are hiding who they truthfully are because that's what people did in the 50s. And I think the 80s, it's a lot more open. And what they really excel at i know you couldn't do this in the 50s with different codes and the way and special effects are but you really feel the pain of all the victims you get to see them being dissolved and how horrible it would be to be consumed by the blob it's not just a scream and well, you gotta disappear. they I, really get into like like the body horror aspect of it the the david cronenberg the melt and the, the, the almost the acid effects of it. And I think that's truthfully frightening when you get to the remake. For its time period, the original Blob has some really terrific sequences, but there is nothing as terrifying as the waitress in the phone booth. Like oh. that, that is just, and some of the, just the effects in the 1988 Blob make the movie itself. It, it's just kind of a, a miraculous thing because it's that era of, Going into practical effects and CGI kind of blooming and coming forward, and this movie really just stuck to natural effects and made things look as terrifying as possible. And even in the uh, the 1958 movie, you've got like some goofy sequences of cartooning, like the blob takes over the diner, and it's just a big, you know, hand drawn cartoon. And they drop the, um, they shoot out the telephone poles, and it electrocutes the thing, and it's all hand drawn and cartooned in, but. And that was, I think, one of the things that had to be done with a remake and has to be handled with anything blob related is you've got to really push your effects. This at its time was a marvel of things. Well, I, I think that's really where the remake excels is there's a certain amount of vermissimilitude. I can't say that word right every time. Vermissimilitude? Vermissimilitude, maybe, is what I'm looking for. It um, makes you feel like you were there. But it may, it's just you can feel every painful death 
of every character in the film. And like I said, they're relentless with who they kill. I mean, they kill a kid. They kill characters you don't think they're going to kill. Which I clearly... Super painful ways. After we have learned from the Halloween harvest, apparently I enjoy the death of children, so I should be celebrating and clapping that. Um, uh, Who doesn't enjoy the death of children? Uh, The Catholics? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you brought up something that I didn't really think about earlier. Um, So, like, the religious aspect behind the blob. And it's, it's a weird thing that isn't, like brought up in blob culture i guess and there's like a blob fest in chester pennsylvania every year where people can go and they do this the theater is still open from the original movie it's like rocky horror you can go and enjoy the town and participate in whatever's going on but the guy that made this really did have a core idea of i don't know you uh, turning the other cheek kind of thing that like at its whole like the the blob isn't necessarily christian that like jack harris wanted to make a product but When you take it and you look at the 80s movie, almost everything, as you've brought up, like you've made me think about it, is still there. Like all these values, uh, the town coming together, you've got um, the sheriff character who is just a complete bastard and and completely evaporated by the blob quickly into the movie, leaving you with everyone else looking at um, this bad guy, this, this town bully or whatever he's supposed to be. And dealing with him as as the hope. And then he runs out on the lead and comes back showing that he's not a coward. And they do the whole underground scene and then, the, you know, the big catapulting end. Everyone does work together. I mean, essentially, it, this is like the Omen remake. It's pretty much the same thing. Well, and uh, another thing in the remake is you can really see Frank Darabont developing as a writer in this film because you can draw direct comparisons between the Blob remake and The Walking Dead and The Mist, just how he treats his characters. Like, each individual character does have a character. I mean, they do have some archetypes that they're playing, but at the same time, you cast the right people, you get the right actor for the role. You can really, I mean, William Sadler shines in The Mist, and he's a nothing character. He's like a, he's a grease monkey. But I mean, just because you hired the right actor and you could play and play Frank Darabont's stuff, it really shows the amount of power he has as a writer because it really does. I mean, really think about it. That Blob remake does feel like The Mist. It feels like the same amount of fear of this impending doom coming towards you. Um, it, it, it oh, what he does successfully. Well, it's not even just impending doom. It's taking even like the I mean, because xenophobia can encompass so many things. Racism, fear, uh, just every aspect of your emotion can be the fear of the unknown. And that at its whole is what xenophobia does and is. And somebody like Frank Darabont takes that. I mean, even the Green Mile or Shawshank Redemption, the Shawshank Redemption is about Andy's. Not even fear of the unknown, his just fear. This is a man that didn't commit a crime that was thrown into this prison, and the whole movie is about the acknowledgement and growth of fear and, like, the myths that you brought up. The movie ends with this person accepting that fear in the wrong aspect, and, like, with this movie, it grows forward, like, um, Kevin Dillon leaves and abandons the lead, and then he comes back because of that whole growing fear, and that's just a concept that he's worked with his entire career and has finally you know, masterfully developed until it was stolen away from him and he got fired from The Walking Dead and they turned it to a whatever. I can draw, like, direct comparisons between, say, uh, I think the kid, the kid's name is Eddie, actually. Eddie in the remake. Eddie, uh, Donovan Leach's I thought character. Eddie was Jason, or Jameson Newlander. 
He's barely in the film. I thought that <laughs> was Eddie. Newlander. He is not Eddie. Eddie is his kid uh, brother. Jonathan Leash is Paul Taylor. Kevin yes. Dillon is Brian Flagg. Shawnee Smith is Meg Penny. Jeffrey Timon is Sheriff Herb Geller. I'm gonna art in the floor is Mr. Penny. Yes. I'm looking for these goddamn kids' names. We're we're officially cheating. There's the kid to... from Return of the Living Dead too. I don't remember his name. It's like Kevin. I think it's Kevin, maybe. Michael Kenworthy is Kevin. You were okay, right. I was correct. I don't know. I don't even see Jamie Newlander's goddamn name anymore. I don't think it's Jamie. I think it's Jason Newlander. I'm pretty sure. It's a Newlander. It's one yes. of them. Right? The kid from the Lost Boys is in the film as the as the. His name Peter's is Jameson Newlander. The kid from the Lost Boys' actual real name is Jameson Newlander. I know that for a fact, and I don't know. Maybe he's not in this movie. He Maybe is as the theater usher. I don't know why we're having this argument. Well, we're not having an argument. I'm just bringing up names. <laughs> Jack Nance is in the movie. We can talk about Jack Nance. I love Jack Nance. Yeah, he's in it for one minute. It it's is a- Anthony Jameson. Goddamn Newlander is his name. All right. Okay. I don't, the other, his brother's Ed. I'm sorry. Yes, that was, that was Ed. Yeah, Eddie. Oh, okay, that was where we we're going at. So the fact that you kill Eddie, you kill Donovan Leach. I can draw a direct comparison in something like. Who do you think had a better death? Because uh, Donovan Leach is a really shocking They're one, but you shocking. see Eddie's coming. Like, he gets pulled into the water, H.P. Lovecraft kind of style. You really don't see them both coming, because at this time period in horror history, you did not kill a oh, kid. You don't kill a kid, yeah. So it's incredibly shocking when Eddie just gets yanked under the water and pops Well, up that's not out. the shocking part. The shocking part's when he pops out. You've got the Jason fucking goes to Manhattan. Well, you still think that the the, the, the director is not going to take it as far as he... Yeah, She's going to pull him out of the water and he's going to be a okay. But he is not fine. He's half melted. So it's relentless with the characters. And I can draw a comparison between that and something like The Mist, where you have the soldier characters, where it gets very shocking in The Mist when everyone in the grocery store turns on the military and just like with fucking market state knives just kills. So who could be like very strong allies and staying alive. They're military for Christ's sakes. And you kill them off because you no longer trust them. And it's just kind of a shocking death and very sad because they like the, the final guy they take out and just leave him outside. Well, there's your comparison. It's very sad. And I think Darabont is very good at that. I think he's very well, good. Well, I mean, you have even a more interconnected comparison with what you just said, because that uh, appears 100 percent in the 1988 blob, because you have these scientist guys that come in. And Kevin Dillon overhears and knows what's going on. At the end of the movie, he tries to tell and say to the sheriff and the deputy and everyone standing there, these guys are lying to you. They're, they're using us. They're going to kill us all. They're going to get rid of us. And then the blog attacks and they realize what's going on. But no one believes him. They're choosing to trust the familiarity and their own fear. And that's just the same concept that Frank, like, uh, again, going back to um, Shawshank Redemption, when Andy gets raped. He won't tell anyone about it. He deals with it. And then years later, eventually exacts his revenge because he knows if he says something about it, the familiarity of everyone else, they're not going to believe him. They're going to believe the people they know overhand, despite the guy being a known rapist, which was uh, the guy from Aliens. It yes, was, uh, yeah. that fact it was Drake. Out. It was Drake from Aliens. Drake hey, I know the rapist. That, but the difference is in the mist, though, the military 
I mean, they do have a hand in this, but these like low-level guys, they don't really know what's going as well as anybody else does, and they're really not. Well, like the Bill Mosley character. I mean, he's all beaten up and fucking hurt and screaming and and going into shock and freaking out. All he keeps repeating is, you know, this won't work. There's nothing we can do. Like they know what's going on. And he ultimately lives, as far as I know, unless all the military guys die, because he does get pulled out of that manhole. I assume, still alive. I assume most of them are the townspeople. I mean, the end of the movie is is considerably different, but considerably the same thing. That the end of the blob from 1958 ends with them figuring out CO2 is what harms it, and then they ship it to the Arctic and drop it off, and that's the end of the movie. This one is them realizing the pretty much same thing, but it's just translating it to the late 80s, and it's a bit more action. It's a bit more... Uh, and not even action. I mean, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of gun battles and explosions, but it still manages to hold a very successful horror feeling. And a lot of that does come down to the tone. And it's just what you've been shown from the beginning of the movie, that this is at its whole, the remake of the blob, a, wonder, a classical B movie. I wonder what the, what the, the, the Methodist dude, whatever the fuck his name is. I don't care about the ending of the remake of the blob where religion becomes the the, the enemy at the end and he becomes the bringer of the apocalypse that he thinks that this is what the lord has wanted this is this is the apocalypse and it's in my hands I'm gonna I, I just think it's kind of interesting that you can draw those two comparisons of the original being somewhat of a religious film uh, you know, in spirit anyway, and then the ending of the remake, which is just like, yeah, fuck a bunch of that religion. It's dangerous. Even the odder part about the original movie is a lot of the cast came from um, Shorty Yaworth's, you know, flock pretty much. And then a lot of them were local theater actors. And then you had some real actors like Steve McQueen, the leading female. And some of the other background people had been doing commercials at the time. I think one guy had been doing a, a not where's the beef, but a, a beef, a, a chicken commercial. And it was, these people were known. Some of them were like pull-ins because this guy was doing, it was the, the sheriff character was doing a chicken commercial at the time. And they knew it would play and be successful on TV. But from 1988 until the time of his death, um, I believe uh, Irvin, Irvin Yaworth died in 2004 in Jordan, and he never commented. He had no statement whatsoever. But Jack Harris was an executive producer not only on The Blob, but The Blob remake, and he endorsed it. He also was the lead producer and the reason the sequel by Larry Hagman got made, and, and he liked it. His big complaint is very similar to mine, that he felt – a lot of the closeness of the town was left out, that it became more of a big picture bringing in this military aspect, and he just didn't agree with that. All you know is that the blob landed from space, and it crashed in a meteor. With the remake, you at least get something, and like you brought up a couple episodes ago, my incessant need to need a backstory on something. It's not always necessary, but it fell from space doesn't help anything. In the remake, you're given this whole idea of like, when the dinosaurs went extinct, American military fuck up, man. <laughs> well, I mean, happens. not even just Return of the Living Dead. You get a myth behind it that, like, when the dinosaurs went extinct, it possibly was because a germ from space fell. You get a mythos and something frightening, something that is from the unknown. So man has taken this germ from space that made the dinosaurs go extinct and has made a bioweapon out of it. Uh, that itself is all you need to incite fear. And the original movie, again, looking at the time era, sure, something falling from space. And it is covered 
you know, it, it wasn't a big thing that they bring up at the beginning of the movie. There's a shooting star. Then all of the characters later, when they uncover the crater, bring up like, well, a shooting star, a meteor. You mean it could be like a space rocket? And they use all these really odd terms for satellites and space debris and things that are now very much accepted. And they they it's a bit more high technology for its time period. And it doesn't. It doesn't go anywhere from that. And with the remake, they give you a little bit more of a philosophy and something to be scarier. The big difference is it just seems like Shawnee Smith is like a like a, a de facto hero. She doesn't even want to be a hero. She's just forced to become a hero. Well, it's, not, it's reality. I think that her character in the remake completely plays off what would happen. I mean... Let's even look at The Walking Dead. Everyone thinks they're going to be Daryl or Negan or some badass. When the apocalypse happens, I'm going to do all this shit, hurt a dur, and nobody ends up doing anything. I mean, most people won't even get up to say you're still watching Netflix because your Xbox controller has gone dead on the other side of the room. People are inherently lazy. This character was given a, a motive. You're going to die or you're going to survive. Um, the Anetta Corsat character, who, you know, this character in the original blob became the wife of Andy Griffith on the Andy Griffith show. So you're dealing with a very cookie cutter, typical early sixties female lead. She does nothing. There is no real action with this character. No, she is a hanger on. She's there as Stephen King or Stephen King. Oh fuck. I'm all fucked up now. Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen's kind of eye candy. It's his it's his reason for being a hero and Which and both of them are poorly cast because Steve McQueen's twenty seven and Annetta's twenty four, so they're way off sixteen. The rest of the cast, all the other teenagers are like eighteen, seventeen year old actors, but um I don't know. You went with what you had. I think Annetta got the role two days before they started filming. And I think it's more interesting in the remake to where they do take it to where like flag is just he's out of there and he's just pretty much just wanting to save himself and then she actually does have to step up and not that she wants to or doesn't want to is just i have to get this job done and i have to save my family and i find that way more interesting than just a group of teens coming together it is that it is the same thing though all these teens come together who are thought to be miscreants and in the same example it's been rewritten that this character comes together with people that she might not work with, people that are easy to quit or don't agree with her or care for the better good of everyone, not just herself, but the town. I mean, even at the end of the movie, she almost sacrifices herself to save the reverend. So the whole encompassing idea of small town coming together to work is shown through this one character. And like we talked about last week, it's the same thing with the Dark Knight when the boats don't explode. People choosing over themselves to make society and life better. So you have all of like flag. Yeah. You have all of these things in both movies. And, you know, as we've progressed and gone through this show, uh, I think you've changed my opinion on the blob <laughs> remake. I haven't, well, I, mean, I think I'm just more annoyed that fucking the lead is Kevin Dillon. I think that's really my just has a punchable face. That's the big problem. Not even but punchable. You, I just want to like, like, like hurt him, like, like smack him with a ring on, you know? Even someone like Jeffrey DeMunn, who starts out as kind of the hard-ass sheriff, um, he softens up as the movie progresses to where, like, 
the dude from RoboCop, the deputies all just like, no, fuck this kid. He's always been a problem. We're going to nail it. It's like, we don't have any evidence. And just I, this whole thing is unbelievable. He starts to soften as a character, but then he dies. He gets eaten by the blob. His face melts. Unfortunately, um, you don't even get a good death. You just get to see him floating uh, around. But I think that's way more shocking because she's calling him on the phone and then she turns around and there's his half melted face right behind her going, oh, fuck. And you've also taken out your um, I think your that's character too many... who's going to save the day. He's not saving the day. You're, you're, you know, your authority figure is not going to help because he's dead. So all authority in this town is gone. And the supreme authority of the military, they're definitely not there to help. They're definitely they're there to, to fuck with their creation. So I think that's too to many throws, though. I mean, this. it's uh, not too many throws. But by the time you get to Jeffrey Demond's corpse floating around, it's not as effective for me that you've already thrown me that psycho kind of pull that we're going to kill the lead once. So you've killed both of the leads. And now, OK, I, I already knew that it's Kevin Dillon. You wouldn't have focused so much on him jumping the goddamn bridge and losing it with the bomb. At the end, it isn't him. He ultimately fucks up at the end. He always gets himself killed. special news bulletin. And 
what is just kind of so interesting, like I said before in the show, is just how much the remix subverts your expectations. And you can say that also about the Blob sequel, Beware the Blob, the Larry Hagman directed movie, Mr. Dallas himself. Um, I first watched this, well, like the son or the Beware the Blob, son of the Blob, Beware the Blob, and I was really, really stoned. And I had no idea. I just assumed it was just kind of a, a, a chintzy, re, like, you know, like sequel to the the original blog it's made in the 70s and getting into it and seeing that they did something completely different i know they were mostly fucking around because the movie takes weird diversions into like weird comedy skits and obsessions over avocado sandwiches and for the really, most part it truly was uh, an exercise in, in grand Hollywood ability that all these people came together because they lived in the same neighborhood and they knew Jack Harris and they knew Larry Hagman and they just made almost a ridiculous mock of the original blob and horror. It's almost comedy. incidental in the film. It's almost not even, it's almost like a complete pointless aspect of the film. It's more about uh, this town and the characters in this town. I guess you could say that for almost all the Blob films. It is about the people that inhabit the town that the Blob is attacking. Well, For Larry Hagman doing the sequel to The Blob, it weirdly plays kind of like Dallas because it's not about oil and it's not about the family. It's about the interweaving weird workings of all these people and the, uh, as you said, incidental happenings of all of them none of it particularly matters and then none of it really tracks either because it just seems like a collection of scenes in a lot of times because you do have the the kind of the teen characters who are running throughout it but it also goes off in these weird sidetracks of people like the haircut scene like the the guy who originally discovers the blob and his wife even down to the uh, dean cundy shot opening credits of of a kitten this pointless scene of a kid like a, a very cute little kitten running through uh, the fields. It just is really subverting my expectations of what a blob film would be. And I, I kind of loved it. I've heard a lot of guff of Beware of the Blob because it's just, what is this shit? It's just goofy and dumb. And a lot of these scenes are pointless. I kind of like that because it obviously showed how much fucking weed Larry Hagman was smoking at the time. That everybody was just there. Probably a couple of times dropping acid, just just kind of making a uh, maybe some mushrooms. Even I mean, there was a lot of quaaludes on set, so, but definitely most of the people were completely and utterly fucked up. I mean, just the tone of it is completely really plays and feels like is just like a laughing skit that um, didn't stop. Yeah. And God, uh, the writer of the movie, um, he he wrote for TV. I can't think of what he did. It might have been. Um, uh, oh no! He he wrote the um the mama part of the Carol Burnett show. The oh, mama's family. Yeah, he did the whole mama's family. That and that's the writer of the <laughs> the sequel of, of to the Blob. So it's it, that is why it feels and has that television feel. That it's the same guy that did the whole thing for the mama's family for Carol Burnett show. Yeah, so that, <laughs> wow! So that's how the wheel turns with Death by DVD. That all these things actually come together. They all land back to Mama's family. It's always Vicky Lawrence, Mama's family, and Bubba. He was in Night of the Creeps. Boom, Mama's now, family. I don't know about you, but I've been listening to K Billy's Super Sound of the '70s, and the other day, um, a Vicky Lawrence song came on, and did you know that it was her that shot the guy? My whole life. But the, the night the lights went out in Georgia? What are you I didn't know it was about? her. I'm making yes. a Reservoir Dogs quote. Oh. You know, it's a thing. I'm, I'm trying to get you in it. Never mind. It's all right. Yeah, it was Vicky Lawrence. 
Yeah, no, it, that's the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs. I was trying to, I thought you I were in on it. We're going to do the whole. Watch Reservoir Dogs in probably 20 years. Dick, I am Dick, over Dick, that Dick, film. Dick, 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 Dick. That's a lot of dicks. Reservoir How Dogs. dicks is that? A lot. Anyway, one day she meets this John Holmes motherfucker, and it's like, And he's digging baby. tunnels. Yeah, I don't want to fuck that. I am not quoting that prick's dialogue. As far, I mean, as Hank was describing earlier with the original Blob film as how the teens become the heroes and beware of the Blob and even to the remake of the Blob, it ends up, all these films end up being about subverting your expectations of what's going to happen with Sean Smith. That is the entire point and its whole, I think that is the entire message between both of these movies. And I think that's the really intriguing part of where this episode has gone because I completely was against this idea. I really thought that the blob was completely separate from the remake and that they both stood for something different, that one was a lot more hopeful and a lot more positive, but in its whole, as both movies, one is just, it's the same translation. You just have to look at it. I mean, and it's kind of the same thing, and but it's kind of completely different, and it, it's just kind of a, an interesting path these films have taken. Even when Rob Zombie was doing his remake, he was going to subvert everybody's expectations, and they're like the stuff it's that's going to be in a trailer now. park. Well, there's going to probably there's going to be a lot of fucking and cock sucking lines and a lot of that. But it, Bill Mosley and William Forsyth are going to be in it, which is like a weird concept to me of like. So the blob's going to, I think, I don't know, never read the script. It just seemed like he was trying to make, like, almost I think, the thing with his yeah. the blob that didn't get produced. Well, but I again, mean, it would have sub- subverted expectations again, though. So, that, I mean, it would have fit in with the blob universe. Well, Jack Harris is the first to say in completion that the blob really did come from the thing that, you know, he had seen that movie and and it's two projects working together that you have Erwin Yaworth and you have Jack Harris and Jack Harris was almost Harris was almost challenged to make a sellable movie. And that's where the whole concept of the teen exploitation, B movies, monster movies, sci fi, all these things collided together and formed the 1958 blob. And all these concepts and all these ideas were in itself to trick your ideas, trick your inhibitions, make you uh, appreciate the bad guy, just make you look at something differently, which in total is what completely the blob from 1988 does. Because, again, pulling old punches like the Hitchcock trick, killing your lead or your supposed hero, it it, it works for your benefit at at a new pace. And really more than anything, those – these films represent the time period in which they were made because this was uh, beware the blob. You get the seventies thing where the kids are a lot more free and hippie. Like um, you go back to the fifties and it's, you know, drag racing kids. And then in the eighties, it's about eighties. Like um, you got the metal kid, you got Shawnee Smith who has always been overlooked, not her particular character, but women in film. And now she's blossoming into a hero. So each one of the films ends up being about almost a statement on being a teenager in that particular era that the film was shot and how that morphs and changes. And in its entirety, I I mean, that's what movies can do that. I mean, you could say that about almost anything, but. Well, I mean, Generally. I think that's what, what Yaworth and Harris both set out to make when they combined their forces and combined these ideas, because both of these guys on their own had two separate ideas that, you know, Harris had this challenge of making this perfect sellable movie. And then Yaworth had this idea of, you know, at some points, a gelatinous mob and people overcoming it. But it's 
just, I mean, you got to even take his Christian standpoint, a, a nameless terror, even something like H.P. Lovecraft, which we uh, brought up on the last two shows and brought up talking about the lighthouse. These aspects of things that don't have to be horrifying. It doesn't have to be Frankenstein or a monster or a serial killer or like bringing the up Rob Zombie. Is probably more terrifying than anything of not knowing how you're going to die. Even if it's a blob, you end up getting dissolved. It's like, well, that's fucking horrifying. You're going to get dissolved. But you don't know what it's going to do. Like a, a bear, you know it's going to claw you bite you blob you don't know what this thing's getting ready to do you don't automatically assume what's well, going to dissolve me so i mean it, it is definitely like the fear of not knowing what this thing is this faceless like amorphous thing that's just going to somehow consume you and you're just not sure what your pain level is going to be at which is kind of horrifying I mean, you have issues with, like, too much explanation and things going into depth, like with Rob Zombie and the remakes of Halloween, that you expose Michael Myers is a psychopathic serial killer sociopath because he's a little white trash kid and his family sucks. You've taken a lot of the horror out of what makes the movie and what makes Michael Myers so terrifying with the blob and the entity itself. And every translation of it, you've got this entity you don't know why it's it's working you don't know why the blob is doing what it's doing it's there it's attacking and it's forcing all these characters to work together so even something like not a living dead it's the same thing like take those zombies away and make it the blob all these people refuse to work together so with both of these movies the 1958 and the 1988 you get an example of communities and people coming together for the betterment. But all these things have been used constantly and is a dry. It's the same as Godzilla. It's always the same thing in a horror movie that involves a monster or I mean, even James Bond movies that include a villain. There is always an evil driving force that separates people. And what makes both of these movies, the original and the remake, necessarily important is that they define people working together in horror that this is a concept that is lost and a part of the genre that you don't get anymore is everyone coming together to defeat the evil, everyone coming out to get rid of the bad guy or hunt down the bad guy that usually it's a slash and stalk sort of thing now. And with the blob, you have a defining point, like things just weren't made like this when it was made and they aren't anymore. And like, even in service of that idea of the teenagers again, like at least the fifties teenagers, they may have been looked at as juvenile delinquents. But if you get to the eighties, like flag is a fucking asshole. And even he has to come together with the rest of humanity. It's even a stronger pull on the remake than because I mean, juvenile delinquents of the fifties, Jesus Christ, Steve McQueen's wearing a sweater vest the entire time. So, I mean, it's like it's not that like uh, and that's even a scene replicated in both movies that uh, they're in the the deep freeze and Steve McQueen takes off his sweater and gives it to the female lead. And then the remake, you've got the leather jacket, the biker punk metal hard edged who's you know, and especially in the 80s, people like that were looked at as complete scumbags. I mean, have you seen fucking Heshers? I mean, seriously, like metal fans of the 80s were looked at as scum. Not completely without truth. I mean, let's break this down to like our movie, though. I mean, let's look at the original blob and then let's look at the remake of, of the character development, like at the original movie or the remake of the movie. You've got the football guys and then it turns you like you only have two or three characters. You've got the female, her brother, football guys for those people. 
In well, the they remake. all turn, but like in the original, you've just got this general idea. You don't even really get characters. You've got a bunch of drag racing ruffians who, again, are all in sweaters. And There's not even the, like real greasers in it, though, like real ruffians. Yeah, like, they're just guys. Plates. They're just kind of kids. And like, But again, you're looking at the idea where this ruffian teen exploitation was coming out. And a lot of it like majorly does tie into James Dean and not necessarily his success, but his death that. You know, he died, Rebel Without a Cause came out, and it's this, like, Rebel Without a Cause wasn't supposed to be a good movie, and it wasn't supposed to have James Dean in it, which has similarities with The Blob. Like, this wasn't supposed to have anybody successful in it, and uh, Steve McQueen wasn't famous. He was an understudy working in New York for plays, and that's how he was discovered for this role, as an understudy. So James Dean dies, and it kind of blew up of, you know, the... The, the windbreaker, the fast cars, the race cars, the, the pompadour, the hair, the image. So in the early translation of things like that with the blob, you've got this very preppy kind of cookie cutter, friendly Americana look as it slowly morphed into a leather jacket. Peter Fonda, I mean, some of the early teen exploitations, when uh, Jack Nicholson's first movie was kind of a late teen exploitation movie, uh, a bad boy kind of thing. It morphed into a much more violent bad boy image which is much more exposed and prevalent in the remake like the the kevin dillon character is the, the bad boy image that translated from steve mcqueen when he's at odds with the deputy the prick from robocop melt man from robocop i mean they really fucking hate each other so it's hard for those characters to actually come together it's a lot easier in the original for like basically good kids to be able to unite with the town these are like some real people at odds, but they can get together. And what do they ultimately come together to fight against other than the government, which is what most people are going to have to come up and fight up against eventually. I mean, that's, that's the one thing that we can join against. Parts of this episode have been eaten by the blob. Email us at deadfydvdofficial at gmail.com to find out how you can hear this and other uncut episodes of the show with a purchase from our store. I have no idea. Just, just end this thing. End it now. So, I don't know. I think the the big point is both of these movies have kind of pushed into each other. I mean, you can look at the original Blob as this independent piece of family values and Americana, but what is any different with the 1988 movie? I mean, you've kind of made that clear that both of these move into each other very successfully and one and the other kind of go hand in hand. So the ashtray's full, the bottle is empty. Through a history of love. Sha-na-na-na. Beware of the blob. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem.